Welcome back to Anti-Social Studies. So we've reached the 20th century. Oh, finally. And the U.S. overall is doing pretty well. Our economy is booming. We've got colonies now. The nation is doing well. But the people that live in the nation, most of them aren't doing that great. Remember the Gilded Age? Uber capitalism on steroids with absolutely zero government regulation? Yeah. By the 1890s, the shininess of the gold was wearing off, and most people were starting to see the cracks underneath. Poverty, corruption, pollution, extreme inequality, you know the drill. And people around the country, well, around the world really, started to wonder if there isn't a better way to be an industrial nation. Like, is it possible to have a booming economy and happy workers that get to keep all their limbs? Mm, I don't know, seems like kind of a stretch. Today, we're talking about the progressive era, or no more thumbs in our meat, please. Muckrakers, reforms, Teddy, it's pretty great. But as always, it's not quite that easy. We progress a lot during the progressive era, that makes sense, but we also leave out a lot of people, as usual. This is Anti-Social Studies, I'm Emily Glankler, settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1, Activism. So where did the progressive era come from? It's not like everyone woke up one day and simultaneously decided they didn't want drunk children working in coal factories or whatever they were doing. But by the 1890s, it was becoming clear that the country being run by laissez-faire capitalism and a few rich dudes wasn't a silver bullet. A financial panic hit after two major companies failed. It was the worst depression the country had ever seen. Meanwhile, the 1930s are like, for now... The Panic of 1893 highlighted a lot of the inequality and political corruption of the Gilded Age. Frustrations rose and coalesced into the Progressive Movement by 1900. But to be clear, the Progressive Movement wasn't a movement. It wasn't really unified in any way. It's one of those things that historians do. We go back and start labeling things. It makes it simpler for us to understand, but it also makes it seem like the past was way more organized than it actually was. But in general, people around the country started to advocate for various reforms at the local, state, and national level. Sometimes progressive reformers were in sync, and sometimes they were at odds with each other, but the key characteristic was that they all thought something should change to make our lives or our nation better. And in general, the solution was for the government to get more involved in regulating certain aspects of political and economic life to make sure that everyone was getting a relatively fair shake. On top of general ideas of what we might now call social justice was a preference for science and expertise wherever applicable. A lot of progressives believed the solution was to employ experts to run various aspects of cities and states. For example, the national education system was built around this time, and it employed all of the newest methods of scientific production developed for factories. Previously, schools had mostly been one-room schoolhouses, with the equivalent of a craftsman teacher overseeing all aspects of their kids' education. Ugh. But we wanted to make things more efficient. Ugh. So we created rigid structures, desks in straight rows, with everything broken down into manageable periods punctuated by a bell. When you think about it, the K-12 model of education is just an assembly line. The teachers are the workers and the students are the product. And I do my very specialized job of convincing students that history is important and indoctrinating them into the cult of Eleanor Roosevelt, and then I pass the kids along to the next teacher to input math or something stupid like that. In addition to education, the field of investigative journalism rose during this time to expose the problems created by the Gilded Age. These journalists earned the nickname Muckrakers by Teddy Roosevelt because they were digging up all the muck that politicians had preferred to sweep under the rug. Magazines across the country published exposés and undercover reports. 
Arguably the first muckraker was Lincoln Steffens, a journalist who exposed corruption in St. Louis politics, but he wasn't the only one. Female journalist Ida Tarbell spent years investigating the rise of oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller. In a 19-part series for McClure magazine, she exposed underhanded business tactics and eventually had Rockefeller's standard oil monopoly broken up by the government. Get it, girl. Nicely done, Ida. But as we've seen, investigative journalism to some degree has existed for a while. I mean, cartoonist Thomas Nast, anyone? The guy who took down Boss Tweed? But there were a few elements that were new in 1900 that helped get the message across. For one, photography was now a full-blown industry, a full generation old. Photographers like Jacob Reese published his book, How the Other Half Lives, showing scenes of horror in the slums of New York, homeless children sleeping under newspapers, dozens of family members sleeping in a one-room tenement. And Lewis Hine photographed young children working in factories. At this time, almost 2 million children under the age of 15 worked in factories. They were prized for their tiny little hands that could reach delicate parts of the machinery and the fact that they could be paid way less than an adult. In addition to photography and journalism, we had much more developed labor unions by 1900. Samuel Gompers had successfully organized skilled workers into his AFL, and unskilled workers and immigrants followed suit by forming the radical socialist organization IWW, the International Workers of the World. And this paralleled rising socialist movements in Europe, especially in Karl Marx's home state of Germany, and it empowered workers to push for their needs while simultaneously terrifying Gilded Age capitalists. Around the Western world, the Enlightenment had spread away from just elite old white men, and it reached the common folk. People started believing the governments themselves should expand what it means to be enlightened and step in on behalf of its people to improve their daily life. Otto von Bismarck, side note, y'all know that I named my dog Otto von Glenkler, right? Because of course I did. Otto von Bismarck began this trend when he unified Germany and created the first modern welfare state, complete with health insurance, unemployment and retirement programs, and worker protections. And in the U.S., the Socialist Party saw success through local collective action, achieving public ownership of basic industries like gas, water, and other utilities. By 1912, 150,000 people were registered members of the Socialist Party, and they had elected officials across the country. And to that end, some industrialists determined that it was just a good business practice to treat workers better. To be clear, this usually isn't out of the goodness of their hearts, but rather fear of a socialist overthrow if they didn't give them something to tide them over, but still. Probably the most famous industrialist who took this route was Henry Ford. At a time when comparable workers were making $2.34 a day, Ford paid his workers double that. He also reduced his workday to eight hours, but that was just so that he could have three shifts to keep his factories going 24 hours a day. But Ford's approach to the auto industry was just totally different than his competition in general. Other companies believed that automobiles were a luxury item only for the wealthy, but Ford envisioned a car that his own workers could afford to buy. What a concept. He focused on mass production while streamlining his materials so that he controlled every material and part that went into making his cars. Every day, coal from his coal mines was brought in on the Great Lakes freighters that he owned, while timber from his forests or glass from his glassworks were shipped in on his own rail line. Talk about a control freak. And every day, it was exactly the amount of each material that he needed to produce his cars without any extra. Eventually, his factories turned out a Model T every 24 seconds. And for the 19 years the Model T was made, that car made up half of all automobile output in the entire world. As the car took over the country, an agricultural revolution followed because farmers could now devote more land to growing food that it had used to grow hay for their horses, and urbanization led to massive infrastructure projects to build roads and bridges connecting cities together. 
So Ford's fixation on scientific management and lowering cost helped him build an auto empire, but let's be clear, he was still a full-blown capitalist. He ruled his company like a dictator, often causing rifts with stockholders that led to them breaking away and forming rival companies like Cadillac and Dodge. He freely employed company police, labor spies, and used violence to prevent his workers from unionizing. I mean, Ford really was just an enigma. He was a pacifist strongly opposed to World War I. In fact, in 1915, he chartered an ocean liner to bring himself and like-minded pacifists to Europe to solve the war, I guess? He called it continuous mediation, but the rest of the world was like, "Mm, Henry, that's not how war works. He was also a published anti-Semite, writing a series of editorials in his own newspaper about the international Jew, a conspiracy theory that Jews financed World War I, a theory that would also allow the Nazi party to rise in Germany. To be more specific about this point, a collection of Ford's anti-Semitic articles were gathered together and published in Germany in four volumes titled The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. In a letter written in 1924, Heinrich Himmler, who would go on to be one of the architects of the Holocaust, described Ford as, quote, one of our most valuable, important, and witty fighters. Henry Ford is the only American mentioned favorably in Mein Kampf, ugh. And in July 1938, before the outbreak of the war, because Ford had been continuing to supply war materials to the Nazi government throughout the 1930s, the German consulate gave Henry Ford on his 75th birthday the award of the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, the highest medal that Nazi Germany could bestow on a foreigner. So, not great. And what's weird, too, is that even though Ford was possibly the one person who did more to bring about the modern era in the United States, he longed for the good old days and was sad to see how his invention had changed society. Like, what did you think was going to happen if everyone got a car? At his home, he hosted old-school European dances like you read about in a Jane Austen novel. He financed single-room schoolhouses and collected 19th-century antiques. He made no sense, but he made good cars, I guess. Also part of the Progressive Era, around the country, local and state governments were making themselves more democratic by introducing procedures like the initiative, where citizens could propose legislation to be voted on, or the referendum, where legislation could be opened up and voted on by the entire population, and the recall to remove officials from office. The 17th Amendment made it so that senators were directly elected instead of being chosen by the state legislature, and parties began holding primaries to allow voters to choose the candidate rather than the party machine. But the most famous act of muckraking and progressive activism goes to Upton Sinclair and his disgusting book, The Jungle. Upton Sinclair went to college when he was 14, you know, as you do, and he soon started selling stories to magazines. He graduated from City College of New York and then continued his studies at Columbia, finishing his higher education when he was just 20. As a socialist author, he was tasked by the Chicago socialist newspaper Appeal to Reason to write an expose on the mistreatment of workers in the meatpacking industry. The idea was to drum up support for the labor movement by showing just how bad it was in those factories. He spent weeks undercover in the meatpacking plants, and he finished his manuscript when he was just 28 years old. Helped out by fellow writer friends like Call of the Wild's Jack London, Sinclair's book got picked up and it became an instant hit. Within months of its release, The Jungle had been translated into 17 languages and was read all around the United States. Unfortunately, people were less concerned with the terrible working conditions because they were too distracted with how disgusting the meatpacking industry was. 
Sinclair wrote about workers' hands getting cut off by the unsafe equipment and then falling into the meat grinder, and readers just kind of skip past the whole guy who got his hand cut off part and fixated on the there may be a human hand in my meatloaf aspect of the story. As Sinclair put it, I aimed for their heart, but I ended up hitting them in the stomach. One person who was particularly hit in the stomach was none other than President Teddy Roosevelt. He read the book and was so convinced that it couldn't be true, he sent federal investigators into the meatpacking plant. They came back and were like, uh, yeah, it's gross in there. And so Teddy went to work. In 1906, the same year The Jungle was published, the Meat Inspection Act was passed, and soon after, the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, was established to oversee the stuff we put into our bodies to make sure, you know, it didn't have a thumb in it. Meanwhile, Coca-Cola is like, well, I guess that's the end of our cocaine miracle soda. Upton Sinclair went on to have a roller coaster of a career. He built a utopian co-op in New Jersey with the money he made from the jungle, but it burned down mysteriously within the year, possibly the result of arson targeting socialist movements. He was never able to get much traction with his works of fiction, and he repeatedly ran for Congress as a socialist, but was never successful. He would later publish political nonfiction on the Sacco and Vanzetti case and the Teapot Dome scandal. Don't worry, you'll know what that is in a few episodes. This book was called Oil, with an exclamation point, and it would later be adapted into the film There Will Be Blood. So that's pretty cool. In 1943, Sinclair finally earned a Pulitzer Prize for fiction for his work Dragon's Teeth, exploring the rise of Hitler's Nazism in Germany. When he died in 1968, Upton Sinclair had written 90 books, 30 plays, and countless other works of journalism. But he'll always be known as the guy who made people vomit through words alone. What a legacy. Act 2, The Progressive Presidents. So reformers and journalists helped things progress in the progressive era, but the real changes came once we elected presidents who also believed in a strong national government. And the three progressive presidents, Teddy, Taft, and Woodrow Wilson, are really also the first modern presidents. Before 1900, the federal government was mostly concerned with taxes, tariffs, and war. Most things that impacted people's daily lives were left up to employers or local government. But all of that changed with Teddy Roosevelt. First of all, I love Teddy Roosevelt. If you're playing along at home, this is the third episode in a row that's gotten a Teddy shout out, and I'm not done. But I love Teddy because he's a modern Renaissance man. He's the Ron Swanson of history. He hunted and went on safaris and traipsed around Latin America telling them what to do. But then he also was basically the Bernie Sanders of the early 20th century, advocating for universal health care, social safety nets, and environmental activism. Oh yeah, and he was into women's suffrage before it was cool, but more on that next episode. So who is Teddy Roosevelt? Well, for one, his nickname growing up was Teddy. Apparently he hated the nickname Teddy, but I refuse to say Teddy any more than I have to, so sorry, Teddy. He was born in New York City to wealthy Theodore Fee Roosevelt Sr. Oh my God, it's like they refuse to accept normal nicknames for Theodore. And his mother, Martha Mitty Bullock, was a Southern belle who was rumored to have been the inspiration for Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Ugh, this family's legendary. Teddy was incredibly bright, partly bolstered by the fact that illness and asthma kept him inside reading books most of the time. His doctor told him when he was young that to survive, he needed to avoid a strenuous life, and Teddy was like, sounds good, and then ignored all of that advice. He graduated with honors from Harvard in 1880, spent some time in Columbia Law School, but then dropped out to join the New York State Assembly, you know, like most college dropouts do. He became the youngest person to serve as a New York representative at age 24. Take that, Pete Buttigieg. 
But in 1884, he had the worst Valentine's Day ever, when his mother and his wife both died on the same day. He left New York behind and spent two years as a cowboy and cattle rancher in the Dakota Territory. It's seriously like that episode of Parks and Rec when Ron Swanson heard one of the Tammies was in town, grabbed his go-bag, and left for the woods. After his time out west, he came back, lost the race for mayor of New York City, remarried his childhood friend. They'd apparently watched Abraham Lincoln's funeral procession out of the window of his grandfather's house in New York City when they were little. Cute. He rose up through the civil service in New York City, becoming police commissioner. Remember the Gilded Age episode? Teddy was the one that was convinced by his friend photographer Jacob Reese to improve conditions for the poor. He then became assistant U.S. Navy secretary under President McKinley. Remember the imperialism episode? He micromanaged his boss, who then gladly released him to join the Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War? Man, Teddy is everywhere. Fresh off of his self-imposed glory and fame, that same year he was nominated for the Medal of Honor and elected governor of New York. 1898 was a bad year for Spain, but a really good year for Teddy. He was incredibly progressive as governor, so much so that the Republican Party bosses, who were used to controlling city politics Gilded Age style, were like, get this guy out of here. And what do you do with a rising politician so that he will have absolutely no power and nothing to do? Make him vice president! Absolutely nothing could go wrong with this plan. And then President McKinley was assassinated. Oops. So in 1901, at 42, Teddy Roosevelt became the youngest ever president. Oh yeah, and before we get into his presidency, some of you might have been wondering, Roosevelt? That's a pretty famous politicky name. And you're right, fictional listener who I think asks questions like that. Teddy was Eleanor Roosevelt's uncle. Oh, hello, Eleanor. I can't wait to talk about you in a few episodes. As president, he walked her down the aisle when she married Franklin Roosevelt, her fifth cousin once removed. Whew, those Roosevelts like to keep it in the family. So it's fitting that Teddy became president in 1901, the beginning of a new century, because Teddy really became the model of a 20th century president. Remember that up until this point, most people, presidents included, believed the federal government was meant to stay out of people's lives and stick to taxes, tariffs, and wars. But a new batch of presidents, the progressive presidents, believed that the executive branch was the steward of the people and that the president should take action for the public good, whatever that meant for him. For Teddy, that meant that the American people deserved a square deal that included fair play in the economy, protections for consumers from big corporations, and conservation of natural resources. And boy, did he deliver. He earned the nickname of a trust buster for actually enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Law and investigating and holding accountable corporations through his new Department of Commerce and Labor. The Expedition Act, well, expedited this process by allowing his attorney general to quickly bring antitrust lawsuits on behalf of the federal government, and the ICC began setting railroad rates to make sure they were fair for consumers. After reading Upton Sinclair's book, he passed the Meat Inspection Act, which inspects meat, I assume? I've never looked into it, but the title seems pretty self-explanatory. And he also passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, which, among other things, established the FDA, the people who regulate what we put in our bodies and make sure that food marked gluten-free doesn't secretly have gluten floating around in there or whatever. Teddy's probably most well-known for his environmental conservation. In 1906, he signed the National Monuments Act, protecting sites like the Grand Canyon, preserving wildlife sanctuaries, national forests, and game reserves. He created the U.S. Forest Service to protect 100 million acres of national forests, and he improved federal irrigation. But Teddy was way more than a trust-busting outdoorsman. He was also progressive on topics related to social justice and civil rights. Now, could he have done more to support African Americans as president? 
Yeah, they all could have. But compared to every other president who came before, besides Lincoln maybe, Teddy did use his position to make headway for the rights of black Americans. For example, Minnie Cox had been postmaster of a small town in Mississippi on and off for decades. She was the first African-American woman to be postmaster anywhere in the country. And this was a really desirable civil service job that made good money. But as Reconstruction-era protections were fading away in the South, white residents signed a petition calling on her to resign. In the fall of 1902, future Mississippi governor and U.S. Senator James Vardaman wrote editorials condemning white residents for, quote, tolerating a Negro wench as a postmaster. He argued that if necessary, quote, every Negro in the state will be lynched to maintain white supremacy. And he became a senator. Facing increasing threats with no protection from local law enforcement, she stepped down. But after hearing about her mistreatment, Teddy Roosevelt refused to accept her resignation and ordered that all mail service in the city should be halted until Minnie Cox was allowed back on the job to finish out her term. That's badass. Fearing for her safety, she moved away, but Teddy stuck to his guns, and the Indianola post office was closed until Minnie's term expired the following year. She eventually moved back to the town where she and her husband opened one of the earliest black-owned banks in the state of Mississippi. Side note, in 2008, the modern U.S. post office in that town was renamed the Minnie Cox Post Office Building in tribute to all that she accomplished by breaking barriers. Cool. T.R. was also the first president to entertain an African-American as a guest at the White House, which is insane when you think about it. Like, Lincoln never had a black guest? Not even Frederick Douglass? Ugh. But after Teddy Roosevelt met with Booker T. Washington in the White House, the backlash was so severe that he never invited him back again. And so, yeah, he wasn't perfect. And some of his reactions to civil rights abuses were muddled at best. And that's me being kind, I think. In 1906, a group of black troops in Brownsville, Texas, were accused of killing a white person. The War Department recommended they be dismissed because none of them would confess, but Teddy seemed to support the black troops. That is, until after the November election. Yep, Republican candidates got hundreds of thousands of black votes, then Teddy dismissed all 167 black soldiers with no pensions. So that was pretty terrible. But in general, Teddy was ahead of his time. He was a strong supporter of a woman's right to vote, leading to one historian calling him, quote, the great male feminist of his period. Ugh, I love me a male feminist. More on that next episode, I promise. Now, after almost two full terms, remember his first was taking over after McKinley, Teddy thought he would step out of the limelight and let someone else lead, as long as he could personally choose who that person would be. His VP Taft became the Republican Party's next candidate, and he won thanks mostly to Teddy's popularity. And Taft really gets the short end of the stick, historically speaking, because he actually did a ton of stuff. He took on more trust than Teddy did, bringing twice as many antitrust lawsuits in four years than Teddy did in seven. He established the Children's Bureau that investigated child labor, the Bureau of Mines to expand national forests, monitor mining companies, and protect water power sites from private development. The 16th Amendment was added during his presidency, allowing the federal government to collect an income tax for the first time, which greatly expanded government revenue. But for some reason, Taft was never nearly as popular as Teddy. For one, what Taft is mostly known for now is that he was very overweight. He, at the end of his presidency, weighed 350 pounds. Now, should that matter? No. But does it matter? Unfortunately, it did for Taft, especially coming right after strapping Rough Rider Teddy. But more than his appearance, Taft did not view himself as a politician, so he didn't do much politicking. He came to the office as a federal judge and then a civil administrator of the newly acquired Philippines. 
He was really popular there because he governed fairly. He improved the economy, built roads and schools, and gave the Filipino people at least some voice in their territorial government. What a concept. So he didn't really feel too concerned with what the Republican Party or anyone really thought of himself as president. And he did some things that went against the party and Teddy, like firing famed environmentalist Gifford Pinchot from his post at the U.S. Forest Service and pushing for high tariffs, something that a lot of progressives did not want. Why? I don't know, but I don't have the energy to talk about tariffs this episode. Taft lost the election of 1912 to Wilson, more on him in a second, and he went on to secure his dream job, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He's the only person to ever serve as head of the executive and judicial branches. Nicely done, Taft. He held that position until just before his death in 1930, and he considered that to be his true legacy, writing, quote, I don't remember that I ever was president. Oh, Taft, most of us don't either. So the election of 1912 was a hot mess, mostly thanks to Teddy. Yes, we're still talking about him. (laughs) He didn't think Taft was being progressive enough, so he decided to run again on a third-party progressive ticket. Nicknamed the Bull Moose Party, Teddy split Republican voters between moderates who supported Taft and progressives who supported Teddy. In the end, another progressive, this time a Democrat, won, and Woodrow Wilson became the only Democrat to serve as president between 1896 and 1932. The party of Lincoln reigned supreme until, spoiler alert, they maybe caused the Great Depression? Just a quick note about all the political party names, just ignore them. At this point in time, the bigger distinction is between progressives and moderates, and they both exist in both major parties. And really, all four candidates who ran for president in 1912 would be considered liberal by today's standards. Heck, Eugene Debs earned 6% of the national vote as the candidate for the Socialist Party. If the Gilded Age was the heyday for conservative politics, then the progressive era was for the liberals. And we can see this clearly if we compare Woodrow Wilson's domestic plan, New Freedom, with competitor Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose plan, New Nationalism. And by compare, I mean just notice that they're basically exactly the same. Both were incredibly progressive and called for the government to step in and restore market competition by reducing monopolies and lowering tariffs. Teddy went even further in 1912 and called for women's suffrage, national labor and health legislation, an eight-hour workday, a living wage, and social security systems for health, unemployment, and old age. Seriously, when Bernie ran in 2016, I was like, please, Teddy was talking about this stuff 104 years ago. Now, we've got to move on to Wilson, but before we do, let's finish out Teddy's story. For now. He lost the election in 1912, but not before he was shot in the chest at a campaign event. He still went on stage, gave a 90-minute speech, and then went to the doctor. Come on, Teddy, leave something for the rest of us. Although his doctor had advised him to get a desk job and not strain himself, Teddy lived a legendary life. Outside of his political achievements, he published more than 25 books on various subjects, including history, oh hey, biology, geography, and philosophy, He published an autobiography and his four-volume, The Winning of the West. Teddy died in his sleep in 1919 at his Long Island home at the age of 60. And although he'd been denied the Medal of Honor after the Spanish-American War, he posthumously received it over a century later in 2001 from President Bill Clinton. He's the first and only president to receive that highest award for military service in the United States. Thanks, Teddy. So... We're going to talk a lot more about Woodrow Wilson in our episode about World War I. So for now, let's just look at what he accomplished domestically as a progressive Democrat. 
Similar to Taft, he came to politics somewhat reluctantly. His original career was as a political science professor and president of Princeton. The Democratic Party convinced him to run for governor of New Jersey, and similar to Teddy, he asserted his independence from the party machine. He went against the Democrats' conservatism and pushed for a more progressive platform. As president, he instituted an income tax on the richest 5% of Americans. Ugh, Bernie would have loved the 1910s. He passed an even stricter antitrust law that clearly exempted labor unions. So before, employers had been able to argue that labor unions were a monopoly of workers that needed to be broken up like a trust, but Wilson was like, yeah, no. Samuel Goppers called this the Magna Carta for labor unions because it established them as a protected group. Wilson outlawed child labor for kids under 14, although this was hilariously declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. I guess they argued that it violated kids' right to work? I don't know. Child labor wouldn't actually be outlawed until 1938, and that was just because kids were taking away jobs during the Depression. Wilson's Adamson Act established an eight-hour workday for railroad employees, and many other companies followed suit. And possibly most importantly, Wilson established the Federal Reserve. This is sort of like the Frankenstein-style revival of Hamilton's Bank of the United States that was killed by Jackson. The Federal Reserve was a system of 12 banks that would hold money from all banks in reserve for safekeeping. The Fed could also set interest rates, which gave the federal government a lot more indirect control over the economy. And this is the moment in my lessons when a kid would ask, wait, how do interest rates help control the economy? And then I would sigh and wonder why I got into teaching in the first place. Okay, before I move on, let me give it a shot. If the Fed sets interest rates low, then people will want to borrow more money. So more money is flowing from banks to businesses, to people, and the economy grows? That sounds right. But if they raise interest rates, people will borrow less. This would slow the flow of money, but could reduce inflation? Why does it reduce inflation? Because I said it does. Let's move on. Act three. Was the progressive era really that progressive? And now's the moment in our episode when I annoyingly unravel everything I just talked about by questioning whether the progressive era was actually progressive at all. Ugh, historians in their gray areas were exhausting. So the simple answer is yes, it was progressive. Hey, that was easy. From 1900 to 1920, huge Gilded Age companies were regulated by the federal government. Workers earned more rights and representation. Environmental conservation became a focus for the country. Consumers were increasingly protected and women got the right to vote. I mean, you didn't think I'd skip over that, did you? I got a whole episode on the women's movement coming up next. And all of these would be considered successes by most liberals today and progressives back then. But there are two areas in which the country wasn't as progressive. Or at least, the country did not act the way a modern liberal would want them to act. Because while we were super concerned with the daily life, working conditions, and rights of white American citizens, we weren't especially bothered by the experience of African Americans and really people of color anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. So, in the wake of the Spanish-American War, Teddy, Taft, and Wilson all viewed Latin America as our own personal playground. Teddy Roosevelt famously argued that we should speak softly and carry a big stick, a philosophy that led us to incite and support a Panamanian rebellion against Colombia, then get the new tiny country of Panama to sign a treaty with us, letting us build a canal, control the canal, and make money off the canal for the next 100 years. I mean, it was a pretty sweet deal for us, but still. Teddy also expanded on the Monroe Doctrine. You know, when Monroe in the early 19th century was like, hey, Europe, stay out of Latin America. 
I believe that's a direct quote. Well, TR went one step further, adding, yeah, and if anyone used to intervene in Latin America, it's going to be us. The Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine was basically our new policy that it was our duty to step into any Latin American country when democracy was threatened. You can't see me right now, but I was just doing big, dramatic, and sarcastic air quotes. Because really, this just meant that we would intervene whenever our capitalist business interests were threatened. But those of you who listened to season one already know all about this. Throughout the Progressive Era, banana republics were established across Central America as U.S.-owned corporations like the United Fruit Company bought up so much land that they basically controlled the governments of Honduras and Costa Rica. And from 1901 to 1920, U.S. Marines landed in Caribbean countries over 20 times under the guise of establishing more friendly environments for democracy and American business. But of course, Teddy didn't stop at Latin America. He set his sights on Asia as well, negotiating a gentleman's agreement with Japan. You see, Japanese immigrants were becoming more numerous along the West Coast. And I think you know how the West Coast felt about Asian immigrants. See the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1884. And Japan wasn't too happy about losing its labor force to the U.S., its growing rival in the Pacific. Remember that at this point, Japan was Meiji restorationing and trying to catch up to the industrial West. These tensions flared up in 1906 when the San Francisco School Board declared that they would segregate students by race, placing Asian students in their own separate but equal schools. Oh, hey, San Francisco, you thought you were all open-minded and loving and so much better than, like, Mississippi? Sorry, y'all were racist, too. So Teddy negotiated an informal deal, a gentleman's agreement, with the Japanese government. Teddy would personally see to it that San Francisco revoked its segregation order if Japan would stop giving its citizens visas to emigrate to the U.S. And everything was resolved, and the U.S. and Japan would never have tensions again. Yay! This agreement came on the heels of Teddy's greatest international achievement, negotiating a peace treaty to end the Russo-Japanese War. What? What is Teddy doing acting as a therapist for Russia and Japan? Doesn't he know we're going to hate them later in the 20th century? Well, he saw that if the war kept going on, they were fighting over land in Manchuria, by the way, that Japan was going to demolish Russia, leading to a massive imbalance of power in the Pacific. And we had just gotten some territory in the Pacific. Oh, hey, Philippines and Guam. And if there was going to be an imbalance of power, we wanted to be the ones in power. So he invited the Tsar and the Emperor to New Hampshire, you know, help them sign a treaty, and then receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Man, that guy just doesn't quit. For the most part, Taft and Wilson followed Teddy's lead in Latin America, although Taft went the more economic imperialism approach. He pushed loans to support other economies across the Americas in a much more stable and probably long-term successful approach that he called dollar diplomacy. And Wilson's strategy in the Americas was, oh, well, I'll say it, it was a hot mess. Wilson was a professor with zero foreign policy experience, and he had no idea what he was doing. He intervened in the ongoing Mexican Civil War after the 1911 revolution, sending the military to, quote, teach Mexicans to elect good men. What? You don't teach people about democracy by sending in a military, Woodrow, and many other U.S. presidents, by the way. But then Wilson was surprised that the Mexicans weren't super happy about the U.S. intervening in the revolution, so he left. But then he sent 10,000 troops to chase after Pancho Villa, who was raiding along the U.S.-Mexico border, but they never found him? Like I said, it was a hot mess. But that's okay, because Woodrow Wilson is really good at domestic policy and peacetime diplomacy. Sure, he's terrible at foreign policy, but it's not like there's going to be, like, a massive war that envelops the entire world during his presidency, right? That'd be crazy. 
So the progressive presidents weren't super concerned about progress for the people of Latin America as much as they were concerned about the progress of American business in Latin America. But even more stark is the contrast between the lofty ideals of the progressive era and the reality for African Americans around the country. I mean, the progressive era is happening simultaneously with the solidification of the Jim Crow South. And sure, Teddy tried to highlight some individual African Americans doing good work, like Minnie Cox and Booker T. Washington, but overall, the federal government really abandoned black Americans. As progressives are pushing to expand white people's voice in the government, states across the country, but mostly in the South, are also putting in place barriers to voting, like literacy tests and complicated voter registration laws. These were intended to keep out all undesirable voters, basically anyone who wasn't a white, middle-class Protestant, and they were effective. In the 1890s, 80% of even white men voted, but that number steadily declined beginning in the early 1900s. But obviously, the restrictions disproportionately harmed African Americans and other citizens of color. Just five years before Teddy became president, the Supreme Court issued arguably its worst ruling in Plessy v. Ferguson, upholding the constitutionality of the South's separate but equal policy of racial segregation. From 1900 to 1920, the years of the Progressive Era, on average 75 African Americans were lynched each year. In 1915, Woodrow Wilson screened the first film ever shown in the White House. Cool. Unfortunately, it was Birth of a Nation. Dang it. A film that glorified the Confederacy and the KKK while perpetuating stereotypes of African Americans as lazy, incompetent, and childlike. After that movie's release, membership in the KKK surged, and they're going to experience a revival in the 1920s, expanding their hatred to encompass Catholics, Jews, and immigrants, in addition to African Americans. But there were notable efforts to improve the lives of African Americans that were happening in the Progressive Era, but these efforts had to be taken on mostly by Black Americans themselves, with little support from the white majority. Booker T. Washington, the guy Teddy invited to the White House once, led the Tuskegee Institute and advocated for vocational education to lift African Americans out of poverty. His Atlanta Compromise, a speech given in 1895, argued that African Americans should earn the respect of white people by demonstrating their usefulness through skilled labor and economic success first. Then political and civil rights would come later. Now, not everyone agreed with this baby step argument. Enter William Edward Burghardt Du Bois, more commonly known as W.E.B. Du Bois. And yes, he wanted it pronounced Du Bois in the English fashion, he told us. He disagreed with Washington's approach, believing that African Americans had waited long enough and they deserved full equality immediately. He also emphasized education, but he believed it was important to foster a talented tenth, a small portion of the black population who could earn prestigious degrees and lead the movement for political equality. And to understand why these two black thinkers had such different approaches to the issue of racial equality, we just need to look at their own upbringing. Booker T. Washington was born in Virginia in 1856, part of the last generation of African Americans born into slavery. He came of age during Reconstruction and became the leading voice for newly emancipated black people in the Jim Crow South. After witnessing lynchings and other acts of violence against African Americans, he came to the conclusion that directly confronting racism would only endanger black people further. That's why he proposed his Atlanta Compromise. He believed that moderate whites, who may be wary of the idea of complete equality of the races, might be more willing to help black people go to vocational schools and get steady jobs. And this slow but steady approach might get fewer African Americans killed in the process. And for someone born into slavery, the idea of economic freedom was incredibly compelling on its own. 
Du Bois, on the other hand, was 12 years younger, and he did not experience the same kinds of hardships that Washington had. He grew up in an integrated community in Massachusetts as the son of a distinguished landowning free black family. Sure, he spent his summers teaching in rural Tennessee, which gave him some insight into the life of the common man, but then he graduated from Harvard in 1890, where he was selected as one of six commencement speakers. He went on to study history and economics at the prestigious University of Berlin in Germany, where just a few decades later, a professor by the name of Albert Einstein would start making some waves. Du Bois went on to teach Greek and Latin at a university in Ohio before earning his PhD in 1895, the first African-American to receive a doctorate degree from Harvard. His doctoral thesis, entitled The Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, 1638 to 1870, was published as number one in Harvard's historical series. So he had a slightly different upbringing than Washington. And it's easy to understand why Du Bois would have been offended by Booker T. Washington's call for a compromise with white people to put their political equality on the back burner in favor of trade jobs and vocational schooling. Du Bois was proof that African Americans could do more than that. But many Southern blacks viewed Du Bois as out of touch, considering he hadn't grown up in and experienced the brutality of the Jim Crow South. The point of all of this was that one generation after emancipation, African Americans were developing their own leaders. And while these leaders didn't always agree, they had the same end goal, true equality for black Americans. Washington worked as principal at the Tuskegee Institute, building the new school from the ground up so that by 1906, it had 156 faculty members, over 1,500 students, and it owned 2,300 acres of land where students could experiment with scientific agricultural methods and learn other trades from black experts. Again, a progressive idea. At the same time, Du Bois was becoming active in the growing black civil rights movement, founding the Niagara Movement in 1905 and then co-founding the NAACP in 1909. As a prolific writer himself, I mean, seriously, go read The Souls of Black Folk. It will change you. Du Bois encouraged other black writers through his magazine, The Crisis. And we'll come back to this in a few episodes when we talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Other black leaders would come along in the tail end of the progressive era, advocating for more extreme measures. Most famously, Jamaican-born Marcus Garvey argued in favor of racial separation, as long as black people had their own government where they were in control. He eventually proposed a back-to-Africa movement that would, ironically, gain support from groups like the KKK, who were like, hey, wait, we want black people to go back to Africa, too. Quick side note about Marcus Garvey, because his life is seriously fascinating. Before he was forced out of the United States for some trumped-up charge like mail fraud or something like that, um, he had these famous quotes that are significant. He said, quote, Look for me in the whirlwind or the storm. Look for me all around you, for with God's grace, I shall come and bring with me countless millions of black slaves who have died in America and the West Indies, and the millions in Africa to aid you in the fight for liberty, freedom, and life. Look to Africa, when a black king shall be crowned, for the day of deliverance is near. Now, a lot of people, especially people in Jamaica, took that quote to heart. And when a few years later, in 1930, Haile Selassie was crowned his imperial majesty, the Ethiopian emperor, they believed that Marcus Garvey had prophesied this exact moment. And they began a movement seeing Haile Selassie, for a lot of them, as like the second coming of Jesus Christ, and Marcus Garvey as a prophet. And they named their movement after Haile Selassie's pre-coronation name, Ras Tafari. So the Rastafarian movement is not just Bob Marley, right? It's an actual Abrahamic religion rooted in Jamaica and also rooted in Pan-Africanism. Pretty cool. 
One last story about Marcus Garvey, because again, his life is really fascinating. So when he was living in London, having been forced out of the United States, he was traveling around trying to support the Pan-African movement. Uh, He was 52 years old and was reading the newspaper, and he read his own obituary. Uh, So someone, I guess, at the Chicago Defender had heard a rumor that he had died and written an obituary for Marcus Garvey. And the obituary said, among other things, that Garvey died, quote, broke, alone, and unpopular. So Garvey got so upset reading his own obituary that he suffered a stroke and he died. He died from reading his own obituary. Anyway. Due to travel restrictions, because World War II was going on, his body was buried in a lower crypt at St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in London, um, but it was later returned to Jamaica, where he's hailed as the first national hero. So back to these different black scholars, which of these approaches worked in the end? Was it Booker T. Washington's focus on economic power? Was it Marcus Garvey's Back to Africa movement? I don't know. Was it W.E.B. Du Bois's focus on a talented tenth of leadership? I would argue that all of them worked. I'll come back to this in way more depth later, but if you think about an event like the Montgomery bus boycott that was sparked by Rosa Parks and led by Dr. King, this is a pivotal event in the civil rights movement, you can see the influence of all of these thinkers. If African Americans in Montgomery hadn't had blue-collar jobs, they wouldn't have had any economic power, and their boycott of the city buses wouldn't have made much of an impact. But if they didn't have highly educated elite leadership from people like Dr. King, they might not have been able to spread their message outside of Montgomery. And finally, many moderate whites looked on this nonviolent form of protest way more favorably than those groups who were advocating for more extreme measures, like Malcolm X, who himself was heavily influenced by the philosophy of Marcus Garvey. So, although not much material progress occurred for African Americans during the Progressive Era, the foundation was being laid for advancement in the coming decades. So, the Progressive Era did some pretty great stuff. Assuming you think regulating big business, protecting workers, letting women vote, and allowing for more democracy are good things. The progress will be halted, or at least put on hold, as we enter the war to end all wars that actually caused many more wars. But a lot of these progressive programs laid the groundwork for massive federal programs that we'll see under FDR and future Democratic presidents. Because Teddy, Taft, and Wilson set the model that would be followed by most presidents up until today. Presidents that see it as their job to represent the American people and use the federal government to improve their lives as they see fit. Sure, we'll have a reversion back to Gilded Age-style politics of the 1920s, that will go back to letting the economy run wild and do whatever it wants, but honestly... What's the worst that could happen? To be continued. Thanks for listening. For a transcript and other classroom resources, please go to my website, antisocialstudies.org. And please remember that if you like what I'm doing, you appreciate this content, or you want more of it, please go join my Patreon. Teachers and students, anyone in education can become a patron for just $3 a month. Thanks so much for listening. 